Hello, welcome to another episode of the Silk and Steel podcast. I'm your host Carl Za. Today we have a very special long-term returning guest, Davide, uh, who came to us all the way from a remote border town on on Chinese side of the border near Myanmar. Uh, Mengsi, China. Welcome to the show, Davide. Uh, thank you, Carl. It's good to be back. Um, yeah, long time no speak. Uh, yeah, how you been lately? How's Bali? We, you know, we just missed each other at the Kuala Lumpur airport. Uh, yeah. Um, like half hour or so. I, I worked it out that, no, we actually were there at the same time, but we... We went to Cape. We arrived at uh, Clear One, uh, the Terminal One, and then we had to get a shuttle bus directly to Clear Two. At the time where I I just don't think because you were leaving at like what nine o'clock, right? Yeah, yeah. My flight leaves at nine ten, and I got to the airport at seven. Um, I sent you the message on Facebook Messenger, but I didn't get any response. So I figured you must be either stuck on a plane or still like busy transiting. And I was in the Terminal One, so I don't think there's any way we could have even. I was I was gonna try and get in touch with you by mobile, and then we arrived in Malaysia, and I was like, oh yeah, I don't have any service here. Uh, I've got two SIM cards in my phone, neither of which actually work. Airport Wi-Fi, airport Wi-Fi. Yeah, I can never get it working. I did fiddle with it for a bit, and then I was like, oh, man, like this isn't working. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's good that I got you uh, back on the podcast again. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. You have just recently returned from Perth, Australia to uh to the to the to Mengsi, the town you've been settling in China for the past few years, yeah. And I really wanted to get you on the show to talk about the real underground situation in China right now. Well, uh, we we'd better talk about the real underground situation here in Yunnan because, as you're no doubt aware, things have been rather different here than they have been, say, in Hubei or other places nearby. For people who are not aware, um, Davide is teaching English um, in southwest, like the real southwest corner of China, literally on the border with Myanmar. So it's a very remote town, and it's a small town by Chinese standards. About <laughs> like 500,000, 600,000 people. No, 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 no. In, in the city, uh, Dehong, um, or the Mengxia Valley, uh, which is where the city Mengxia is, uh, there's about 400,000 in Mengxia City. Mengxia is the capital city of Dehong, Dai and Jingpo Autonomous Prefecture, and then in the towns and villages, which are also in the Mengxia Valley, uh, there'd be about another 400,000 people. In other words, a very small town by Chinese standard. Well, yeah, because um, 
the Mungsha Valley itself is like a mountain valley. It's about a thousand meters up here. Um, Mungsha City itself is pretty small. I could go. I could go around Mungsha in about ninety minutes, two hours on my electric scooter, and that's and that's going no more than like thirty kilometers an hour. So you can work out from there. It's really not a very big city. Uh, but then the Mungsha Valley itself is quite a lot larger, and there's a lot of villages and towns where a lot of the agriculture, well, most of the agriculture, this is an agricultural region, and most of the agriculture happens out in the villages and towns, as well as a lot of the industry that happens, or such as it is, the industry that happens here. So imagine my surprise when I hear from you that even such a small remote part of China that the coronavirus crisis has um, <laughs> yeah. a huge impact. I mean, like you you were talking about um, like shutting down of the normal economic activity in the town and such. Uh, is that I did I remember that correctly from your Facebook post? Well, um, this is, we're talking about, uh, like, you know, a month or more ago, um, there was one confirmed case here. Um, and the thing of that was that it was very detailed, like on social media here, people were posting, like the government, the local government had posted, they didn't, they didn't identify the person. They said, uh, the patient got this flight from Wuhan to Kunming, this flight from Kunming to Mengxia Airport, and then got this DD car from uh, Mengxia Airport. To, uh, where was it? Uh, it was to Baoshan Prefecture. So... And that was like the flight numbers and even the license plate number of the DD car were identified. So one person had been through and then there was one person who actually got coronavirus who was from Mengxia uh, and they, they had isolated them. Like everywhere in China has isolation units set up special for coronavirus now. Here it's quite fortunate we have the new Friendship Hospital, which is still, um, it's being mostly used, but it still has some empty space. So what they've done is they've just stuck the isolation unit in the traditional Chinese medicine centre at the new hospital, which still hasn't been opened yet, really. Uh, And that's where that person, whoever he or she was, was isolated. I imagine by now they have been released. Um, but apparently there was another case quite recently. Someone, you know, you know how basically in Hubei they've locked down everything. It's pretty like the lockdown's actually pretty um, stringent there. Yeah, I saw, I saw social media videos of. Uh, surrounding counties in Hubei, they actually put up physical uh, rope. Like, I mean, I mean, physically blocking the road. As in, they had an excavator piling dirt on the highway to stop 
car traffic from leaving. So yeah, it's it's a pretty tight cordon around the around the whole province. Well, that's that's been happening here as well. I mean, not not here in in Mangshe, but um, certainly f- further north. Like you go north from Lijiang, say you're going to go to Shangri La City or somewhere like that. They actually blocked off, yeah, you because know, like those places are really high up in the mountains. Like Shangri-La city is about three Ks up in the mountains. And there's only really a few way, like one or two ways in by road. And so they actually had at the height of the crisis, um, physically blockaded the roads and gone, okay, no one in, no one out. And in that way, well, it's hard to say whether that actually prevented the virus from going there because it's unclear whether anyone with the virus would have been going there. But that's that's what they did anyway. And, and like Shangri-La is, I mean, here is remote, but it's on the border with Myanmar. So there's a certain amount of uh, trade and travel going back and forth. Like Shangri-La is, is like, isolated like it's so high up and i think it might share a land border much further up with uh the tibetan plateau but is a is a tourist town right i mean it's it's known for being a touristy place so i imagine their fear might be somebody who from wuhan might have traveled there i'm guessing i'm guessing here yeah true but I think there's actually a lot more um, uh, tourism during the winter, uh, during the summer, because during winter it gets like grotesquely cold and it's snowing and there's not much of an opportunity to go anywhere or do anything like Yeah, yeah, I forgot the northern part of Yunnan where Shangri-La is located. It's basically at the foothill, the Himalayan foothill. It's 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 where the Tibetan plateau starts. So it, it it's pretty high up there. So it gets cold. I forgot about that. Well, it was it was part of uh um Kham back in the day. I checked that and what is now Shangri-La was actually part of Kham, which was one of the Tibetan states back in the day. So, yeah, no, like it's it's very. If you think about Tibet, um, Shangri-La is very much like you imagine Tibet. It's pretty high up. It's really cold. There's lots of gigantic Tibetan people, like the Kumbha people, are really big and tall and strong. And yeah, but anyway, they blockaded. Um, they blockaded Shangri-La. Not using the name, the modern name Shangri-La. I just like to point yeah. it out the place. It's called Zhongdian uh, prior, but uh, it's, it's actually the place that was described extensively in the travel of American botanist uh, Joseph Rock, whose writing for National Geographic inspired James Hilton to write his novel uh, Lost Horizon with a mythical place, Shangri-La, as the yeah, setting, yeah, yeah. which is based northwestern part of Yunnan and and to promote tourism the Yunnan provincial government uh, decided I forgot if it was in the 80s or 90s it was 2009 
Okay, so 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 late two thousand. Uh, in order to promote tourism to this part of Yunnan, they just decided to rename the former uh, town of Zhongdian or uh, as Shangri La. So now that it's official, yeah. So so that's now it's the official name of the place, Shangri La, and it's known for you know very picturesque um, plateau and and as you mentioned, it's much more of a touristy place in the summer. And I'd just like to go back to what you said yeah. earlier about Yunnan government releasing the detailed information of the itinerary of the traveler from Wuhan who contracted. It was it was the it was the prefectural government. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. The, I I just the the prefectural government releasing the detailed itinerary the coronavirus patient. You know, including flight number, uh, his uh, the taxi number, the bus number, etc. It's a it's a way basically to alert people who may have been traveling with him to basically go get checkup. You know, go 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 make sure they're okay too. So I think that's pretty good, actually, a pretty good measure. You know, without just yeah, yeah. the person's name, but also letting other travelers know that they're potentially at risk. So. Yeah. So, okay, so describe to us, um, you know, what has happened, you know, since basically the, the outbreak and, and Chinese Lunar New Year. Uh, did the acti- economic activity in Mangsi just ground down to a halt? Is everybody now staying at home? What's the situation there? Well, I want to talk about then and now, because now, of course, it's the start of March. Um, things, it's not over by a long shot. But some of the economic activity has resumed. Um, for example, we actually went to the to the market yesterday to the local market, and we talked to some of the vendors, and they said, "Oh yeah, we we got back to work like two weeks ago, a week ago, that kind of thing." So um, it seems like from the middle of February people here were going, well, we we haven't the luxury, you know, we need to get back to work. We need to sell our fruit and vegetables and stuff. So we'd better go back to the market. So apparently the market was reopened uh, in the middle of February, although people weren't all going back at that time. But you have to imagine here is an agricultural region. Most of the... Most of the um, people here are engaged in agriculture. And if if you can't hit the market for so long and sell your things, well, you, your family might not have that luxury. Like, sure, yeah, it's during Chinese New Year, but people are still in the market. They're still selling things. They're still making some money. Um, and if people aren't able to do that, then... Like they, they, their family starts to suffer if there's no money coming in for weeks and weeks. Well, that's that's quite a hit for the family. Yeah. I mean, so you're you are saying that now there's more of a kind of recovery back to semi normalcy. But can you just talk about when the crisis first break out? When how it ha- impacted the place then? Well, um, at first. It was worse at first, okay? 
because at that time, everyone, no one really had a good idea what was going on. Um, at that time, basically, uh, the local the local communities, so the sub, um, it's called the Chinese communities. Basically, it's the sub-municipal government level that is like, if there's a huge apartment complex, they will be like the government administration for that apartment complex or a city block or so on and so forth. Uh, basically, they have all everyone. Everyone's had to sign these forms saying, "Look, we're going to stay at home for two weeks. If we get any symptoms whatsoever, we're going to take ourselves to the. Um, we're we're going to let we're going to let the local government know, and they're going to take us to the um, diagnosis and prevention, like the quarantine units." Uh, where we'll, we will be diagnosed and isolated if possible. And this is like, you know, sign your name, thumbprint. So uh, basically, if you sign one of these things and you don't do what it says on the paper, then you're liable for jail time. I I haven't heard that anyone has been jailed for bre- breaking one of these uh, contracts. But this is... Have you- were you required to sign a contract or you or your wife? Oh yeah, we both were. Because I am I am I am a resident. Like I am you know, I'm a local resident here, so yeah, as soon as we got back we we had to go to the local community and they talked about okay, so where have you been? We said, Oh well, we've been in Perth for the most of this. However, we have been through Kuala Lumpur and we have been through Kunming where there have been more cases of coronavirus than there has been here in Mangsha. So they said, oh, well, okay, look, like you should stay at home as much as possible the next two weeks. You can go out, but you have to tag in and out of your um, apartment building when you do go out or in, and you have to protect yourself at all times when you are outside of um, your apartment building. So you can go out, uh, but you, you have to limit, you know, like limit your going out to, you have to go out to get food pretty much. You're not allowed to go out and like, you know, do social visits or go out drinking or anything like that. So that's because you recently traveled, right, and returned. Yeah. Does that apply to everybody else who who was living there? I mean, who have not traveled? Uh, as far as the isolation, well, look, people people are getting back to work now, so it seems not. You're right. No, no. I'm talking about now. I'm talking about when the outbreak first started. Was there? A- yeah, this was this was everyone. So, so everyone. Um, I, I'm I'm speaking from uh, you know what I know. Talking to my own relatives in Chongqing and and Zhejiang, right? Most of them are kind of stay put in their own residential compound, and you know each residential compound in China yeah. has a security guard. And they are restricting, yeah, and they're restricting movement of people who do not live there. So only people who 
who lives in those compounds are allowed in and out. And 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 my uncle tried to order um, delivery of Chongqing Papa. <laughs> And the delivery guy was not allowed to go inside the compound, so my uncle has to go downstairs, go to the gate, and get the delivery himself. So that was the kind of the level of isolation that was done in much of China. Was that the same in Mengzi as well? Uh, well, it was, and it still is to a certain extent. Like some places, like um, the local campus of the um, middle school attached to the Dehong Teachers College where I used to work and Wayne R still does. Um, they're not allowing people who don't work or live on the campus to go in there for the moment. Um, and you have to tag in and out, if you, even if you're a resident or a student there. Uh, the local party school, um, like the Mengxia Party School, the Dehong Party School, which is like just a few doors down from here, there they also have like large campuses where people live and stuff as well. They're not allowing people in who don't. When the crisis first broke out, what happened to like shops and markets and you know people go to get their you know food, you know like food like the normal economic activities around the town, right? I mean, like every Chinese. Tang is always so bustling with life, with, you know, like, food stand. Yeah. What happened that, to that, was, that wasn't happening so much. Um, people were having to rely on what they had at home or what they had in their own little... Like, you've, you've seen where we live. You stayed here yourself for a while. Um, here wasn't so bad because there's a lot of these, like, gardens that aunties and uncles have planted in their own apartment, you know, complexes, like on the grounds. So I think those aunt those aunties and uncles are doing very well for themselves for a little while. Because- oh, wow. So they were, they were basically selling the veggies that they grew in the garden inside the residential compound? Um, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, um, like if if I've heard of it happening here, then it was happening other places as well. You know, <laughs> like um, because that's that's the point. Like a lot of a lot of elderly people do that one, um, you know, to keep themselves busy and occupied and like not just rot away sitting in an apartment, but two, they do it so they have their own money. So they don't have to, um, I've heard it phrased as don't have to be a burden on their sons and daughters, you know, that they're not working anymore and they may or may not have a pension. However, they can still make their own spending money, you know. That's very Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I I don't want to give my, my son any pressure. I don't want to give my daughter any pressure. Like, I'm. I can I can make my own money, you know. Yeah, and uh, I think also for uh, our Western audience, uh, that a lot of for a lot of the Chinese uh, families, they still live w- with their parents, even uh, like if they're married, because they will have their parents to stay over to take care of their kids mostly. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, here there were. 
there was a case here. One of our neighbours was a elderly lady. We, we called her Happy Auntie because she's always like real happy, like loud voice, blah, 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 blah. Um, her and her husband um, had the big farm at the back of our apartment um, building. I think I might have showed you they even had like a pig pen, chickens and ducks, all of that kind of thing set up there. Oh wow, that belonged to them. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, they're the ones who were do who were growing all that stuff there. Um, but re- like they they were staying with um their daughter. I think it was their daughter whose husband, like they all they all live together here. Um, and their their granddaughter was one of my students. But recently, the son and daughter have got divorced, and so now, now they've all moved out. They've moved back to their home province, and now the pigs and the chickens and the ducks aren't there anymore. They've been sold off, or they've been turned into meat, I suppose. Um, and some of the vegetables are still there. Like one of the other elderly people who live around here have taken that over, but yeah, um, their their farm is pretty much gone. It's kind of you know like I, f- I felt quite sad, you know, because we we saw them like uh, maybe a couple weeks before we left, and now we come back and they're they're just like gone, you know. Yeah, what... and they, and they, they, were, they were really nice neighbors too. What well, um when did you guys leave China for Perth? Uh, we we were extremely lucky, actually, that we had left in the middle of January, and then like a week or two later, um, all anyone was hearing was coronavirus, and then of course the Australian government <laughs> was not allowing flights back, and even before that happened, anyone who was coming from China was getting thrown in the concentration camp in Christmas Island. Uh, for two weeks, yeah. Were you guys uh, so the flights to of from China to Australia were stopped? But what about flights from Australia to China? Okay, yeah. So this is what's happened on the way back. Uh, Australia still isn't allowing direct flights from China. Okay. Uh, so what happened was our original flight itinerary was Perth. Guangzhou, Kunming, Mengxia, okay? A few days before we were due to come back, we got word, oh, your flights have been cancelled. Don't worry, you've been refunded. But it's like, shit, now we, how are we going to get back now? And then we realised, oh, um, if we rebook through Singapore or Malaysia, then we can get a flight onto uh, Kunming, from either location and then and then we settled on malaysia because that meant we could get back from perth to uh, mangsha in a single day we didn't have to stay anywhere but then that meant oh hang on a second australia and malaysia have a three-month no visa period so as an australian citizen i am entitled to go to malaysia and stay there for three months without a visa however Malaysia and China haven't got any such an agreement. So for the few hours 
that we, you know, because we, we booked through um, Malaysia and then it was like, oh, hang on, what about travel visas? And it was like, well, I'm okay, but Wayne R, we, we needed to organize a travel visa like a, a few days before we were due to fly out. Oh, wow. So you guys need to get her a, a travel visa just for the transit through the airport. A trans a, tr- a transit visa, yeah. Wow. And we we literally we got to clear one. We got the shuttle bus to clear two. Uh we're at clear two for a couple hours and then we flew straight to China. Clear one for people who don't know is uh Kuala Lumpur International Airport Terminal One and Clear Two is uh is a terminal two basically. It's a two adjacent airport basically and and yeah no. and and it's a pretty big place i have to i have to admit um you know because i was doing the transiting through malaysia on the same day you were um i was pretty i was a little apprehensive flying <laughs> to kuala lumpur myself because i you know i i um i had to do a visa wrong from bali because my uh my visa was uh was get, getting uh, it's getting to the end of my six month social visa on Bali and my American passport uh, expires on August uh, 23rd. So, so I have to travel before February 23rd. Otherwise you will run, I will run into that six month valid uh, passport rule, right? Cause a lot of countries including Indonesia require your passport to have uh, at least uh, six month validity date before they can allow you to travel. So I had to do a like a kind of emergency visa run to Malaysia. I ended up just uh, flying in and out, basically flew in on the 21st and coming back on the 22nd. Um, it, it was kind of, I was cutting it close because at the both airport before leaving Bali and also leaving Malaysia, people are, people are saying, oh, you know, your passport is going to close to expiration. We don't know. We have to call our supervisors. And luckily, I had a receipt from the American consulate in Bali showing that I'm in the process of renewing my American passport. And yeah, and but in addition to that, they also look at my passport and ask me, oh, when was the last time you were in China? <laughs> and, and for me, it was easy because I, I, you know, I was there in China in July 2019. But for you, it's a lot more recent. Did you get the same question? Oh, yeah, uh, totally. Um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. So, yeah, I was saying, oh, yeah, clear one, clear two, like I'm such a globetrotter and I go there all the time. That's the first time I've been to Malaysia in my life. And the only reason I went is because we got rebooked through there. Um, no, yeah, no. We we got that we got that at um at Malaysia. Um we we even got temperature scanned by two young dudes who looked like they'd been hitting the weights at um like two buff young dudes who worked I don't know for the airport or something. They they took our temperatures with those little forehead guns. Um, then we went to. Because you guys just recently traveled from China, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that that was after we declared. Yeah, we've been in China like mid January. But furthermore, 
on the way to Australia, we had been through Guangzhou, which, apart from Wuhan, had the most cases. So Guangzhou, which is like an international travel hub, like you could go from Guangzhou to pretty much anywhere, and that was that was like one of the centres of the uh, outbreak. So, yeah, that was pretty serious in itself. Um, they they checked us at Malaysia, then we went to Kudming. Okay, we went to Kudming, and they 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 gave us the third degree there, even. Before we got on our flight to Mangsha, uh, we had to scan this little app thing, like a little QR code for WeChat. And we had to fill out like this statutory declaration using uh, our WeChat. And then we had to show that we had completed that statutory declaration at the departure gate before we were allowed on our plane to Mangsha. And I thought, oh, sweet, we're going to Mangsha. I've done my statutory declaration. We're going to get there. We're going to get our luggage. We're going to get a DD. We had to book a DD, by the way. Um, you know, like the taxis, there weren't still, there weren't many taxis even a week ago. And we're going to go home and get to sleep. But it wasn't to be so easy. We got to Mangsha and we got to the baggage area and it's full of like people in full like biocontainment. Not not quite a level four spacesuit, but they had like those raincoats, they had like uh, uh, N95 masks. We had to do another statutory declaration using WeChat and then we showed, oh, we've done another statutory declaration um, and then we were allowed to collect our luggage and leave the airport. Um, but yeah, no, they weren't they weren't letting anyone just like get off the plane and leave. Like you you had to go through this this whole extra uh, step before you were allowed to leave the airport here. Oh, that's right, because you flew from Kunming to Mangsi, right? Because there's no there's no high-speed train yet connecting in your border town city to, to Kunming. No. They're building it now, and it'll be ready, like, I don't know, a few years later or whatever. But, yeah, no, the funny... Because I hadn't slept at all. I hadn't slept for a day. It's like midnight at that point. I'm starting to get the irrits a little bit. And I was thinking, but I just did a statutory declaration an hour ago in Kunming. Why do I have to do another one? I just want to go home and sleep. Oh, my God. Yeah, actually, I had to do that uh, on my return from Kuala Lumpur to Bali. Uh, And, you know, like... People here are taking it seriously. I, you know, like at the airport, at custom, all the custom of officers are wearing masks. And in Kuala Lumpur, I say about 40% of the travelers are also wearing masks. And well, me- in, in, in Kunming, 100% of people were wearing masks. Like, I didn't see a single person who wasn't masked up at Kunming. 
even here in Mangsha, in Mangsha City, at the airport, everyone was wearing a mask. Everyone was wearing a mask. Even even in the towns and villages, most people have been wearing masks, like um, those waterproof surgical masks. Now, are there like uh, government posters or like uh, government notices urging people to wear masks in China? Well, um, I sent you those pictures a few days ago. Remember, um, there's the government, like their uh, official information campaign, how to ameliorate the coronavirus. And it has like about 20 different things people should and shouldn't do during this time. Um, but one of the things is, yeah, wear uh, you remember I sent you on Facebook, remember? Yeah, and I think this is a good opportunity for us to do a public service announcement regarding uh, coronavirus prevention. So basically, um, any mask will help. Uh, yeah. and, but even more important than wearing masks is washing your hands because the coronavirus uh, spread by basically droplets from, you know, people coughing and, uh, you know, these, these tiny droplets that could land on door handles, uh, on any, any objects that people usually pick up by, you know, touching and then they, their hands reach up to rub their eyes or pick their nose. And that's how you get infected. So actually one of the function of the mass, um, you know, unless you are using N95 mask, which actually filters out viruses, um, uh, but the, the regular mask, their, their function is actually preventing you from touching your nose. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a mechanical, um, uh, what do you call it? Bound. Barrier. Yes, yeah, yes. Barrier. Yeah. So, so washing your hands is actually the most important. Um, like if you don't, you know, if you don't want to shove out the money for N95, it's okay because they have shown, you know, um, if in cases where uh, doctors and nurses and medical health workers who work in hospitals treating corona uh, corona patients, that surgical mask is almost as, just as effective, mainly because it helps you from touching your nose yeah. <laughs> and rub your mouth. And, and, you know, like some kind of... Uh, so, so keep these two things in mind. Uh, that will, you know, get you out of the most most of the situation. Me personally, I had my surgical mask on the whole time after I left Bali when I went to the airport, traveled to uh, Malaysia at the Malaysia airport. Uh, you know, I took off the mask after I, I got out of the airport just because both uh, Malaysia and Bali is actually quite warm. And so hot weather actually helps a little bit because the, the virus don't, doesn't last as long in hot weather conditions. Um, but yeah, in airport where they have AC full blast, uh, definitely definitely get your mask on. Yeah, recirculated air and all that kind of thing. Yeah, airports airports are like second only to hospitals as good places to pick up whatever contagion happens to be out in the world at a given time like 
I was a little bit apprehensive, uh, to be honest, because um, I went to the so when I was in Malaysia in in, uh, in Kuala Lumpur Airport, um, I saw about forty percent of the people wearing masks, right? So I, I saw a group of Indian people with masks sitting in the waiting area. I figured, okay, they're 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 people from India. They're probably okay. So I sat next to them, and uh, then then I started tweeting on my phone. And like, just just like a few minutes later, 10 minutes later, I hear Mandarin spoken. <laughs> I look around, <laughs> the Indian tourists are already gone and sitting next to me are these aunties from from China, you know, talking <laughs> Mandarin. They're all wearing masks, of course, but I was like, oh man, you know, like, I, hope, uh, <laughs> I, hope <they're, laughs> I hope they're all healthy <laughs> for my sake and theirs. You heard people speaking Chinese and you were like, oh, you did a bit of a flinch, right? <laughs> even even though, yeah, like just, just out of instinct, you were like, oh, I hope I don't get coronavirus. <laughs> I, I can understand people's fear about about the coronavirus because it's new, it's, it's highly contagious, and there's a lot we don't know about it, so there's... When you don't know something, there's a lot of fear. And it's from China. Well, it originated in China. So that that gives everyone a nice opportunity to dust off the the yellow peril fucking thoughts that are lurking around in their subconscious as oh, well. Yeah. Um, of, course. It was, of course. Of course, of course, there was a lot of that shit in uh, Australia. Like a lot of people who ordinarily go to a lot of trouble to convince themselves and to convince others that they're not racist are really letting it hang out right now. <laughs> now it's like, yeah, yeah, now now I've got like a uh, um, an excuse for my like thinly veiled like prejudice against Chinese people. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. it's terrible. Glad you made it back. Uh, yeah, back safe. Uh, you're you're uh-huh. sniffling a little bit. Uh, yeah, yes, you okay? Yes. You don't have the virus. Uh, well, I was I was just I was just thinking about how funny that would be that I come back here and a week later I come down with coronavirus <laughs> and. <laughs> And all, all of my neighbours would love me so much if I got our apartment building isolated. <laughs> oh, so how is the situation right now at your place? I mean, like, uh, is there... life is returning. Um, that people, I mean, all the isolation measures are still in place, but people are going out more and more. One because they've all passed their two-week isolation periods, and two, because they have to get back to work. They have to get back to whatever office they work in or whatever farm. You know, because it's the start of spring here, man. So the planting is beginning, you know. Over the last few days, I went around some of the villages and towns in the Mangsha Basin. So like basically the outlying towns and villages, all the all the agricultural villages and towns. Now here, here there's two types of town or village. There's hill and mountain villages, 
and there's flatland villages, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, first I went to the hill and mountain villages. I went to the village I took you when you were here, remember? The the new socialist village. You, you know, the one the one that's like quite close to the Golden Temple. Ah, yes. With all those murals and stuff. I went there and... Okay, so villages here, this isn't 100% strict, but but villages here are kind of zoned. Uh, there's like three zones, okay? There's uh, agricultural, there's light industrial, and there's residential, okay? So all of the farming and stuff tends to happen in one part of the village. All of the light industry like the machine shops, the brick-making factories, all of that kind of thing is in another part of the village. And then all the residential is in another part of the village. Remember how you had thought, oh, wow, these this village is so clean. Like, this is nicer than, you know, really a lot nicer than you were expecting. Yeah. Part, part of that is they tend to keep all the light industry away from the houses and away from the farms and stuff. Uh-huh. So anyway, what happened there was um, I went into I went to the residential entrance of that village. We we went in by the industrial entrance. I went in through the residential entrance and there was like a group of die aunties wearing face masks along with their traditional clothing. And they were tagging people in and tagging people out. And they stopped me and they were they were basically saying, uh, yeah, you shouldn't come in here. And I I led them to believe that I was just going to look around, I would keep my facial mask on and I wouldn't go like looking. Yeah, you know, I, I would just stay on my my scooter, and I was just looking around, and I would keep my face. You off. foreigners always breaking rules, man. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't breaking a rule because, like, their their concern was that I was going to be taking my mask off, and like, blo- I didn't because I actually did ask them. You know, I didn't. I didn't just drive past. At first, I drove past, and I was like, "Oh, hang on a second, I should probably <laughs> talk to them." So I actually, I actually did a U-turn and went back around and stopped and said, "May I come in?" Um, I'm, I, you know, blah blah blah. And eventually, they were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, okay," but like, don't, don't take your mask off, don't go like walking around, etc. Just drive, drive through, have a look around, and go. And I did ask them if I could take a picture of them. And they were like, yeah, nah, we don't want you taking <laughs> pictures of us. And for people um, who, who don't know, uh, you mentioned the Dai aunties. Uh, so the Dai people are uh, the ethnic minority people living in Yunnan. They are have a very distinct culture. And the area that David lives in is... Is Dehong Dai and Jinpo autonomous autonomous prefecture because a large percentage of the population 
are composed of either Dai or Jinpo people. So this is their autonomous uh, prefecture where they have a spe specific uh, specific rules and laws that that um, kind of regulate according to their own tradition. Uh, the laws, um, Dai and Jingpo people have certain uh, protections under law and certain privileges under law here. Um, their languages and their uh, their culture are protected and uh, basically government monies go to the preservation of Dai and Jingpo um, language and culture. And they have certain rights to do with um, employment and uh, like their living uh, arrangements and things like that. Uh, people who have been to maybe Thailand or Southeast Asia, so the Thai people are um, related to uh, Thai people from Thailand. So they have very similar culture, holidays. Uh, like in, in, in Thailand, they celebrate Songkran, for example, and the water festival uh, celebrated in Dehong, uh, Dai and Jim Autonomous Prefecture is basically the same, same holidays as, as Songkran. It, it is the same. It's a Buddhist. It's a Buddhist. Um, it's a Buddhist uh, festival originally, um, and the Dai people are almost all uh, Buddhist, except except for a few in northern Myanmar who have become Christianized. But for the most part, Dai people, whether they're here or Thailand or Myanmar or even Laos or northern India, are Buddhists. There's a huge swath of uh, basically what they call <laughs> linguists called the Thai-speaking people, uh, which which includes the Dai people of Yunnan and also Thai people in Thailand that spread throughout Southeast Asia, even into Northeast India, which happened in like a, a thousand years, over the process of a thousand years. Um, the process actually started more like 2,000 years ago. Um, the process, all of these people originate in this part of what is now China that overlaps Guangxi, Hunan, and uh, Guang uh, Guizhou provinces. Like there's this part of what is now China where these uh, migrations began from. And they've gone, there's, um, hang on a second, I've got the maps here. You've got the Southern Thai, and the Southern Dai and the Northern Dai. And from here, the Southern Dai went south into Siam and the Northern Dai have gone like west into what is now Yunnan and uh, Myanmar. Oh, the Southern Dai have also gone into like Laos. And, well, well, what is now Laos? Because this all happened like, this started about, about the time of Christ and this process has sort of ended by about a thousand years ago. Uh, at the time of Mongol conquest, this, this process was still ongoing and people are migrating south and pushing into like the former lands of 
uh, Kimmar Empire or the or the 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 the, the, the Myanmar Empire, so like the Pagan Empire, and the Dai people they went all, as far as you know what is currently North East India, um, established many kingdom there. In in fact, the the state of Assam, uh, you know where Assam tea is from, was originally established. Uh, was established as a Dai kingdom, a home kingdom, um, and they, uh, you know, they, those people originally came from uh, like area around Yunnan, about thousand years. Well, I've got I've got the maps here. So uh, look, you know, like I've sent you those uh, pictures of, um, you know, the 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 government information about preventing coronavirus. I could also send you along the pictures of the probable, you know, like the origin of the Dai peoples and their migrations around um, well, Southeast Asia, basically. Yeah, that would be great. Um, the point is the Dai people of China, also the Zhuang people in Guangxi, the Lao, the people in Laos, the people in Thailand, um, people in northern Myanmar in the Sang state and the people in northeast India, they're all related, you know, linguistically, culturally, um, you know, they, they... They have a common geographical origin about 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Um, so we digress a little bit because yeah, that's what we always do, as we always do. Uh, back to the situation of... Um, uh, currently right now in Yunnan, China. Uh, and you also have traveled through other cities in China on your uh, your transit to Perth, right? I mean, you've been to Kunming, uh, you've been to Guangzhou. Yeah. What was it like? What was it like in those other Chinese cities? Well, Guangzhou, I, I we only went there on the way uh, back to Australia, not on the way back. So I couldn't say. Uh, Guangzhou... Look, as, as from what I've heard um, from like friends of mine here or whatever, like in the eastern, in in the in the southeast of uh, China, in the east of China, things are, are really they're still like commerce has slowed down a lot. Like one, even if people aren't isolated. Like things have really slowed down in the Chinese economy. Um, like most most of the economic, well, most of the people in China are in the east of China, so most of the economic activity is like also in the east of China. And with the east of China being caught up in all of this, um, now now they're even thinking about now they're even calling it an epidemic, you know. Yeah, actually, in uh, you know, I have relatives on both ends of China. My my mother's family is from Chongqing, which is right next to the Hubei province, and they actually had I think three hundred to four hundred confirmed Corona cases by now. And then my father's side of family is in Hainan, Zhejiang, which is a town that sits halfway in between Shanghai and Hangzhou. Um, so it's about one hour, 45 minutes south of Shanghai. And, and both set of my families, 
right now are staying at home. They they you know they live in the residential compound, which limits movement from people uh, outside. Uh, only people living the compound can can move in and out, and they are you know they. they try, they stock up on food, so they're still living on their <laughs> month supplies and occasionally ordering out. So they're not venturing out shopping right now. And, you know, people, some people resort to online shopping, but even online shopping, the last leg of online shopping is the delivery guy, you know, delivering the goods. And a lot of the time, the delivery guys are, are not allowed to go inside those residential compounds. So if you do online ordering, you have to basically put on your mask, go to the residential gate and get it yourself. And um, so, yeah, so, so, so the economic activity in China, I would say ground to a halt in last month and a half or so. And 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 actually the just yesterday the the official Chinese statistics on the PMI numbers came out. Um, and both the manufacturing and service numbers are at record low. I mean it's lower than than 2008 financial crisis. So this is a big hit to the Chinese economy. It's quite unprecedented. It's probably the hardest hit the Chinese economy has seen in last 20, even 30 years. Uh, I mean, the last time I, I could remember something that has like a similar impact on the Chinese economy was uh, was the aftermath of Tiananmen Square protest when you know the West placed sanction on China. And that was what that was th more than thirty years ago, and and back then Chinese economy is a lot smaller than it is currently. So so there's no doubt the first quarter, first half of the year, the num economic number is going to look horrible. But I mean, but there's a, there's anecdotal uh, evidence that things are slowly coming back to normal. Like story you just told, and also I hear. From people online, there you know people saying their parents are, have just just recently gone back to work uh, last few days. So um, like things are trying to recover. I, I think well, the go ahead. Some some sectors are going to be worse hit than others. Like so, say uh, private education, which is the sector I've been working in since um, mid two thousand and eighteen when I returned to China after my time working at the public college here um all of the private um uh, like all the english schools all that kind of thing all of the all of them are still closed right now now they're making up for some of it by doing classes online like by wechat or however else um, quite a few of the people I know who run those kind of schools are doing their classes online now, but it's still not making up for being able to teach hundreds of students in in a weekend, you know, like the amount of money you generate doing that. Um, some of it's being made up by online classes, but one, you can't teach as many students that way and two, parents, I don't believe that parents are willing to pay as much for online classes as they are the kids go to the classroom and they have actual teachers and 
they can use all of the resources of um of the class of the classrooms you know so that's one yeah. area where which which is going which is very large as it happens like you know people might think oh you know our oh, private schools it's not that big of a deal and it's like nah the private education sector in china is enormous you know what what with the chinese passion for extracurricular education um the sector in china i haven't got any figures but i would get i would conservatively guess that it's in the tens of billions every year you know easily because you know chinese parents place a great emphasis on education and they will spend you know they might not spend a lot of money on themselves but they will definitely spend a lot of money on their children and their, on their children's education that's that's been my experience and everyone i've talked to has said exactly the same thing that like um i was i was doing some adult classes some adult english classes like with doctors like professional people like doctors dentists stuff like that and, and that was okay but like the size of that market is like you know a few students and the size of the market for children is like as many students as you could possibly fit into a day or a week like like there's there's never enough supply of private teachers or private tutors for all the parents who want their kids to do english classes or music classes or dancing classes or whatever else you know so yeah like like you say like go ahead chinese chinese parent parents tend to be extremely parsimonious about the money they're willing to spend on themselves but if it's for their kids like they they will spend any amount of money if they think it'll get their kids ahead you know yeah so right now i think um some business will actually thrive like i think the online business like you mentioned the online teaching classes will probably yeah. benefit from this um actually i know uh there was a a teaching app some some chinese uh, startup started this teaching app which allowed uh, native english speakers uh teach english to chinese children remotely you know so so you know the the kids will just log on and then uh, so, like the the foreign english teacher who may not even be in china who may be residing in another country will be you know doing like a private tutoring in fact i have a while i was doing china i met a entrepreneur who took elon musk to court <laughs> over the uh, over the the trademark of uh, Tesla because he registered Tesla.com in China uh, way before you know Tesla was a thing and then uh, you know Elon Musk and him had a fight over the trademark name. Uh, I met him in Guangzhou and he told me about the app. Um, so this was July uh, before I came to Bali and when I came to Bali, there are people who telling me, yeah, um, there's these like expat surfers who 
just work on this Chinese app, and they basically can earn up to like a thousand, two thousand dollars a month, uh, just teaching English to Chinese children remotely, and then they go back surfing. <laughs> and these these are like some of the new economies that that's opened up. Um, well, this is like, as I said, like you know, but for me right now, like the sector I've been working in kind of isn't doing much right now. So one of the things I'm doing right now is doing some writing uh, for a colleague of mine. Uh, you know, you like to make some money, but I'm I'm having to look into different ways I can make money now. Because it's clear to me that the sector I've been working in has been disrupted and probably will be disrupted for a while. I've I've been resistant about online teaching because it's my understanding that it pays extremely little, and um, but basically, like yeah, you know, like. It seems to be more weighted towards the economy side. Like they want to pay as little as possible. The parents want to pay as little as possible. The people running the service want to pay as little as possible. And they're not so concerned about the quality of the instruction as, yeah, I'm I'm willing to work for like five you know, four bucks for an hour of teaching online. And so I've been resistant to that, but if there's a way to make more money doing that, that's one of the things I might actually have to consider here. Um, you are actually thinking about starting your own Patreon site, right? Well, yeah, no, like that's one of the things that like I'm having to consider now that this is the sort of thing I do now anyway. And with a, I mean, like as far as like generating content that people are apparently interested in. And so basically now um, I do have a proper camera so I could get better quality pictures um, talking about all facets of life here where people don't, people don't tend to come here unless they have a reason to. Like foreigners, like, yeah, nah, like... This is kind of one of the parts of the world that tends to get largely overlooked because of it's so isolated and it's it's not insular, but it's it's not like a touristy location that people come to and have extensively written about and documented. Yeah, I mean, it's not even a touristy location inside China. I mean, like the... It is- it is touristy for other Thai people. For the, you see, it's a funny thing. Uh, but yeah, no, like for the most part, like a little bit, but not so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for like, say, like um, domestically in most part of China, when people think of tourism in Yunnan or they, even, even like Thai culture related tourism, they would think, uh, oh, water festival, that must mean Shishuang Na, right? Which is on the other side of Yunnan, near the Laos border. They wouldn't think Mangsi or Zhuili, right? And then, um, so, I mean, much less exposure in 
rest of the world, particularly the English speaking world. So I think you you are doing the God's work there, man. Just like bring exposure to this very remote part of China. And I, my recommendation is just get your Patreon site started. And once you have that started, you you just uh, you know just provide content and 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 you build it, people will come. That's that's my two cents. Yeah, the more people who come, uh, it snowballs from there if the content is good, which I'm reasonably confident it is. Because um, I have, I have a pretty good base of people here as well. So for me, like, I mean, you are a long-term resident there. Even like, I, even for me, you know. Uh, just let me speak for a second, David. Okay. Uh, okay. Even for me, I I'm like really learned a lot from from like browsing through your uh, Facebook postings and, and and traveling there to meet you. I mean, I, I, this is a part of China that has always fascinated me since I was a child, but I really don't know too much about it. And, and I think you really has helped me to understand this part of the world. Well, that's that's really saying something. So thanks a lot. But I was going to say, like, more importantly, the fact that I'm a long-term resident. Like, there's plenty of long-term resident, foreign long-term residents in China who could, who could, who can't tell you shit about where they live or the people or nothing. Is that like I do have a lot of connections with people, like local people here, and it's more the case that like. Oh, I can I can ask this person, or I can ask that person, or however else you know. Yeah, we we actually know a lot of these foreigners who couldn't tell you shit about people about places they live in China. Many of them work for mainstream uh, Western media, <laughs> such as Wall Street Journal, and New York Times, <laughs> or Economist, for for that matter. Well, look, those 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 motherfuckers. The full interview has been released to my Patreon subscribers. To subscribe, search in Google the Silk and Steel podcast. The Patreon link should be the second one from the top. Or you can go to patreon.com in the search box, type in Silk. The Silk and Steel podcast should be the first one in the result. I put in a lot of time and effort to put together this podcast, and I do ask you for your support. For $5 a month, you will receive premium patron-only episodes like this that details culture, politics, history of China, its surrounding region, and China's relationship with the world. You will also receive pre-released regular episodes before they have been released to the general public as well as newsletters detailing everything China-related topics. I hope you enjoy the show, and I hope you subscribe. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.
say 